most of you were, were here last, last Sunday. For those that weren't, I'll, I'll do my best just to, just to bring you up, up to speed. Um, one of the things that we've, we've mentioned over the summer is that uh, with so much to and fro it's hard to, to, to pick one thing to go after. We've, we've found the joy in being able, being able to go through a series over the last couple of, couple of years. And uh, when it gets to the summertime, it's slightly more challenging to, challenging to do that. But I strongly felt that, that the Lord has just been, um, just given me, been challenging me. And last week, uh, I shared a lot just about my own journey around the conversation of faith and doubt and fear and all of that. And, uh, and so I grew up and so we shared that last Sunday, and I want to—I just want to follow up on that a wee bit this Sunday. Um, and next Sunday, looking forward to Fudge, who's going to come, Neil McMullen, who's going to come and speak to us next Sunday morning. Um, David will be back from holidays the next Sunday. We're just going to—we're just going to see what what God wants to say to us uh, throughout the summer. But for me, and I don't know if 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 any of you are in the room are like this. I know it was a joy to speak to some that really engaged and uh, last, last week. For me, I spent a lot of my, my Christian experience, a lot of my journey with, with the Lord, thinking that his pleasure in me was based on being right, on believing the right things. I suppose that was the premise how, how I uh, introduced last Sunday and also this Sunday living for so long, believing that his pleasure in me was based on my certainty, on my knowledge, on my believing the right things. And I, and I, and there's nobody, I don't think there's anybody to blame. I don't think I have any reason to, to blame parents or church or anything like that. I think it was just an assumption. It was just uh, a way that I, that I think I understood the story. And I grew up believing that doubt was my enemy. The doubt was an enemy to the faith. And so any time that I came across something new that I'd never seen before, I came across something in archaeology or I came across something in biblical scholarship or I came across some new scientific discovery, I almost had this fear of seeing something new, a fear of learning something new. Because whenever doubt was an enemy, it suppressed I got into the habit of suppressing any questions that, would have, that were almost naturally coming to the surface. And so I don't know if any of you in the room do that or if that's been your story, but I thought doubt was my enemy and questions, fears were suppressed. But as I, as I continued to engage with people, and, and I think most of you know me by now that I have a deep, a deep passion, a deep love for the church. I am fully convinced the word tells me that he's coming back for one bride. And so I, I, love, I love our Presbyterian brothers and sisters and our Methodists and our Church of Ireland and our Elam, Quakers, fill in the denomination. I, I love them. Um, and as I begin to engage with them in a, in a more relational level and a, in a and deeper conversation, as I engaged more, attempted to engage more with the world, as I continued to engage more with the Bible, what I began to realize whenever it came to the conversation around faith 
is that faith had to be authentic. Faith had to be authentic. And I shared that last week, and I shared that faith is not a destination. Faith is not somewhere where we, where we have arrived at. I am convinced that the Christian life and the faith, the faith that we hold to is a, is a pilgrimage, it's a journey. And so much of our Old Testament is, shows, I think, the biblical, what biblical faith looks like. It's a pilgrimage, it's a journey. I think so much of what the psalmist pens is, reminds us that this is a pilgrimage, that this is a journey. And so faith had to become authentic. Faith, I realized, was not a destination. It was a pilgrimage. It was a journey. And for me, probably one of the most significant things is that faith was about trusting in the character of Jesus. And I, I want to say this. I'm, I'm, I was, I'm not saying that I doubted my, my salvation. I'm not saying that I didn't think that I wasn't a Christian. I wanted to, I still wanted to follow him. I still wanted to obey him as best as I could. But the question that started to arise in my mind over over the last number of years, in some ways it sounds really simple, but for me it was a really significant question. Where am I getting life? And so when Jesus comes to say that I have come that you might have life in all of its fullness, that's a wonderful verse. It's a wonderful verse to stick in your fridge. It's a wonderful verse to have as a bookmark in the middle of your Bible. But actually, it started, it started me on this, on this journey of asking, where am I getting my life? Where is it that I'm finding life? I'm left, with this, left with this dilemma, am I getting my life from the confidence in my beliefs about him or in my relationship with him? And that was really important for me. Maybe it's really important for some of you, because if I'm being really honest, if I go, if I look at at a at a, at a part of my journey, at a at a significant chunk of my journey, I think that I was getting my life and my confidence from my confidence in my beliefs about him, rather than my relationship with him. And I, I'm really hoping that you see the difference. I've one of the things that I love more than anything, is, uh, is learning in community. I think, we need, I think we need that. I know that I need that. I feel that even in my pursuit of the right beliefs, my pursuit of being confident in my beliefs about him, it was a task that often I, I took on my own. It was something that I did by myself. It was something that I journeyed with on my own. Over the last couple of years, I've found the joy, the benefits, the fruit of learning in community. And you've heard me say it from here before. I, I, although I'm standing here at the front, I'm the one that has the microphone. I, I stand here, I hope, with as much humility as possible, knowing that I don't have all the right answers, knowing that I haven't it all worked out. And with that in mind, community engagement is really important for me. Learning in community is has been so significant. And I learn, I know for me, and I know our learning styles can be different, I want to acknowledge that. But I know for me, my learning increases whenever we engage together. And so one of the, be- one of the, most, one of the things that, that excites me as much as, as much as anything else is when people begin to engage with, with Sunday mornings. I love it. And it's not that it's, it's people that don't, aren't just coming and saying, 
agreeing with me and saying everything that you said was right. It was people that began to engage, began to wrestle this out a wee bit. And so it's, it's somebody that uh, on Twitter that had listened to, listened to last Sunday morning sent me this message. And part of it, uh, part of it was quite personal, which I'll not, which I'll not repeat. But to say this, based on last Sunday, what they heard last Sunday, it almost brought, it almost released. It released something because now there was no more fear, and this is a quote, no more fear of flunking a theological 11 plus. No more fear of flunking a theological 11 plus. I'm not going to repeat that again in case I get it wrong. He went on to say he didn't ask Peter to sit an exam. He asked Peter to follow him. I love that. I loved engaging with this guy over social media and being able to, being able just to, to work that out. He taught me so much in, in this conversation. He didn't ask Peter to sit an exam. He simply said to follow him. And part of, part of what got really personal, and I'm not going to go into it, but this is, what, this is the introduction into where he went. He says, once you let go of the need to be certain about everything, you can escape the terror of encountering an idea that makes you question your neat theological categories. Once you let go of the need to be certain about everything, you can escape the terror of encountering an idea that makes you question your neat theological categories. As I was sitting preparing last night, one of the things that I felt like I want to say at this stage and what I want you to hear me saying over the course of today, even if there's some stuff that you're still thinking about from last week, please hear this. I am not asking you to doubt just for the sake of it. If you're in that place at the minute where, where, where doubt isn't an issue, where there, there is no questions that are really rising up within you, please don't pursue doubt just for the sake of it. And I know I'm speaking to people who are, who are wise and clever and you wouldn't do that, but please don't, just in case. Don't doubt just for the sake of it because I, I, really, felt, I really felt strongly in this last night that, that faithfulness that faithfulness still requires that we that we requires us not to dwell in uncertainty. If we're going to remain faithful, because that's what we want to do, as, as we sing of his faithfulness, that becomes the, the longing of our hearts, that becomes the response that we want to offer back to him, is faithfulness. And so I think faithfulness requires us not to dwell in uncertainty. So please hear that. But for those that, that are in that place, I still want to, I still want to, us to enter into a conversation. I still want there to be a freedom and a permission to be able to engage with questions of faith and doubt. Let me, uh, Andrew sent me, Andrew Gribben sent me a message just while I'm on the, just while I'm still thinking about the importance of engaging together as community. So Andrew sent me a message at the start of the week. Um, not a huge, not a huge message, but enough to just to continue the conversation, enough to continue the the wheels turning. And Psalm one three one says, "My heart is not proud, O Lord, and my eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quietened my soul, like a weaned child with its mother." Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. 
Uh, you'll know that I, uh, if you've been about here long enough, you'll know that I love going and exploring the, the original uh, text, what it said in the original language that this was written. And whether it's Hebrew, which this is, or whether it's the Greek or Aramaic, there's, I, I love going to do that. I've always relied on Google. I bought myself a present a couple of weeks ago that has been revolutionary. I just loved it. Uh, it's an it's a, it's a NIV Bible with Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic um, stuff right throughout it. I just loved it. And as I engage with what Andrew, the conversation that Andrew provoked within me, brought me to Psalm 131, and the word for concern was the word halak, the Hebrew word halak. And it was a word to describe a going. It was a word, it was used to describe a movement of going without any suggestion of a definite destination. So it was a, mo- it was a moving word, it was a going word. It was used of movement without any suggestion of a definite destination. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. This word used to speak of wonderful is nearly always used of God. And when it uses, uses this word in our English, wonderful, it speaks of the things that he does beyond our human abilities or beyond our human expectations. So I'm, I'm reading these few verses in Psalm 131 and I'm realizing that that was the story, that was the testimony of the psalmist, that there was things that were just too wonderful, that there was things that were beyond his human ability, there was things beyond his human power, beyond his human understanding, beyond his human expectation, and he wasn't going to concern himself. He was going to continue to move even though there wasn't a definite destination. Even though there was that level of uncertainty, he had got to that place of contentment. And that's what the weaned child speaks of. It speaks of of coming to a place of contentment, coming to a place of trust. It's a picture, a picture of contentment with God's care. And I love that. I love that. I love that picture. That there is things that are so far beyond us that we can't get it, but we're going to keep moving. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep with this, this halak movement word, even though we're unsure of the definite destination. And I just think over and over again, the psalmist gives us permission to speak like that. The psalmist gives us permission to think like that. If you are like me reading through the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading plan, you would have read this morning Psalm 142. And the psalmist begins that psalm saying, I will pour out my complaint before you. What he's saying is, I'm going to bear my soul. I'm going to bear my soul in sorrow and in anger. I'm going to pour it out. I'm going to empty myself of of all that is within me. Everything that's been suppressed, everything that causes me to question, everything that causes me to doubt, I'm going to pour it out. I'm going to bear my soul. Because because the psalmist has already alluded to it, that there 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 is a contentment when we're in his care when we're under the shadow of his wing. So there's three things that I, that I want us to talk about um, this morning. I want to speak for a few minutes on covenant. 
I want to speak for a few minutes on Jacob. I want to speak for a few minutes on Job before uh, I wrap things up this morning. And uh, it's because I, I touched on it last week. I shared a few things that, that for me growing up, faith looked like faith was about being certain. Faith was about being right. Faith was that all the thinking has been done for you, now sign on the dotted line. And in some ways, for me, I didn't think of it at the time. Again, this is all hindsight. I've left with the, I'm left with the question, is, is my, where I'm at now, is my faith a contract or is it a covenantal understanding? Is my understanding of faith one of a contract or one of covenant? See, a contract is a, is a legal agreement. Covenant, our contract is where you tr- put your trust in the document. You put your trust in the document. Covenant is where you put your trust in the character. And um, Judas not here. Give me permission to. But, but I, as, I, as I thought again about this, even just this morning, still wrestling with this idea of how to, how to present this, the idea of covenant. Do you know what? I, I don't know of the other married couples in the room. The best analogy I feel like I can come up with when it comes to the idea of covenant is, is marriage. I know we got married young, Judith. We got engaged when we were 19. Uh, got married, Judith was 21, it was my 22nd birthday. And I, and looking back, I think there was probably a certain naivety as we entered into marriage, and I'm so grateful for that. But you know what, as I, as we, as I consider marriage and consider those that have been married, we've had the privilege of, of um, being part of those marriage ceremonies. I don't know if, if it's all right to say this, but I don't think you can be, ever be fully certain. I don't know if you can be fully certain entering into a marriage, but what I can be certain of, what I knew that I could be certain of, was that I could trust Judith's character. There was things about marriage that, that meant that I was entering into this uncertain. I couldn't be fully certain. How could I? It's why our vows say, whether it's in sickness or in health, whether it's rich or poor, whether it's for better or for worse. Even within our vows, we are acknowledging we're entering into, we're entering into a covenant that, is, that has certain, a certain degree of uncertainty. And so the places that I might have been uncertain or not fully certain, I knew one thing, I could trust her character. And so I'm grateful that this morning as we, as we wake up, as we get the kids ready, as we, as we do all the things that we do in our, in our home, I don't have to pull out a legal document to remind myself that I'm married. I don't have to pull the certificate out to, to remind Judith of, of the trust that we need to place in this legal document. I don't want to have to use that to prove that I'm married. I, I don't want to be one that is entering into marriage to fulfill the duties of a contract. I've entered into covenant. And so I didn't get to ask Judith this question, but I'm hoping to know the answer. Judith, do you want, do you want 
me to have all the right beliefs about marriage? Or do you want our marriage to be living? Do you want it to be visible? Do you want it to be, to act? What, what is it that you want? I think that she wants it to look like something. She wants it to be visible and living. And the more I've tried to, 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 to grasp this idea of covenant, it's the, the biblical understanding of faith, I think, from the beginning to the end is one of covenant. We see it being established and restored the whole way through the, whole way through the Bible. And so as I think of that, as I think of asking Judith that question, I'm left asking that question as I think about my relationship with him. What, does it, what is it that he wants? Does he want all my right beliefs about this covenant? Does he want all my right beliefs? Does he want all my certainty? Or does he want something that is living? Does he want something that is visible? Does he want something that acts? I read this quote during the weekend. I can't remember where it was. But, but the essence of it was you only truly believe that which puts you, which moves you to action. You only truly believe that which moves you to action. And so if, so if my marriage to Judith is about fulfilling the duties of a contract, it has nothing to do with the, with the trustworthiness of her character and vice versa. And so if the Christian life, if, if my journey of faith is about fulfilling the duties of a contract, then it has nothing to do with the trustworthy nature of God. And so again, as I look back, I know some of the questions that I would have asked, some of the thoughts that have dominated my mind were around, can a, can a person lose their salvation? When it came to conversations around relationships, how far is too far? And you know what? I, became, I began to realize in my own life and in the people that I was talking to, we're really looking for loopholes. When we ask how far is too far, we're looking for a loophole. When we're, when we're, having, those questions, we're having those questions about predestination, we're looking for a loophole. We're, wanting, uh, we're, wanting to, to, we're almost viewing it as a legal contract. We're seeing it uh, as something to debate and, and fight over the minor details. Whenever it becomes like that, that has nothing to do with the trustworthy nature of the character of God. So I feel that the idea of covenant, uh, the faith being a covenantal concept has become something that uh, the Lord has just reminded me as we've started this series. I feel like that there's more that that could be said and there's more that somebody far more experienced and well-read than me could do. But I want you to be challenged. I want you to to ask yourself that question. Is Is your trust in a document, or is your trust in a character? And the more I understand faith to be a covenant concept, a covenantal concept, it's, it reveals to me and reminds me of the, of the trustworthy character of God. The more it is about a contract, the more I am trusting in a document, the more I am fulfilling the duties of a contract. And I think I probably got to the stage where I cannot, if that's the way my Christian experience is going to look like from here on in, it's too difficult. It's, this doesn't feel like the life that Jesus came to offer, the life that he came to bring. Do you want to 
Can we read this together? Can we go to Genesis chapter 32? Genesis 32. Let me just read, let me just read this story. It's a fascinating story. Somebody, I think somebody again, I think somebody alluded to it uh, just in conversation around coffee uh, last Sunday morning about Jacob wrestling with God. And it says in verse 22, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? And Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. And just as I read that, I'm aware that, um, for those that don't know, I have a, this is, I'm heading into pity party mode here. For those that don't know, I have a dodgy ankle. And uh, for, the, for whatever reason, the last couple of days, it's just been so stiff, it's been so sore. And, uh, and as I read through these few verses, I'm like, I could cope with the limp if it was from a wrestling with God and he blessed me. Just came from a stupid football injury. It makes me, as I read this story, it reminds me of uh, that there's a way of limping that comes from being blessed by by God. Anyway, Genesis chapter 32. I feel that uh, whenever I whenever I read this story, whenever I begin to engage increasingly with this story, I find myself at a place where it raises more questions than it answers. I'm asking myself the question, how is it that the man, so, so we're told the man could not overpower him, really later find out that it was God that he was struggling with. It was God that he was wrestling with. And so I'm reading through that and I'm like, surely if God wanted to, with a click of the fingers or whatever, he could have overpowered him. With, he could do whatever it was that he wanted to overpower. He could do whatever it was that he wanted to let him go. The man said, let me go for it is daybreak. I imagine to myself, if this is God, if he's wrestling with God, surely God could, could overpower him in a moment. Surely God could cause him to let him let go if he wanted to in a moment. And, uh, and, so, and as I've thought about that, I, I don't think I'm going to necessarily answer the question this morning that I feel that it, that it raises it doesn't happen as much as it used to. There's times where I, I wish it would. But whenever, whenever Caleb and Eli were like between three and five, like maybe three and six, like as soon as I would have come home from work or as soon as I would have came home from anywhere, the boys were standing at the door. Right, Daddy, you're, you're a dragon and I'm a knight. Let's go. 
let's wrestle, let's fight. And there was times where I was like, oh, I was too tired. Or, but every time, but I could, I'd give in every time. And, and, I, and I wish now, looking back, I'm going to get very nostalgic here, but I wish now that and, uh, if I knew we'd only have three years out of those wrestling moments that have taken, uh, enjoyed them even more. But as I read through this, as I read through this, this story, I found myself being reminded of those times where, as a dad, I would wrestle with my boys, and there were three or four. But every time they won, it was amazing. Couldn't work it out. They beat me every time. Every time it came to the end, the knight always pinned the dragon. I was always beat. And then they would beat, and then we would just, we would just wrestle on the floor. We would, we would be incredibly close. It would be, it would, we would laugh and all of that. Good stuff that comes from wrestling. And I don't know if it's the same thing, but I know that I'm not the strongest in the room, but I know that I could overpower a three-year-old. And I could, I could have, I could, if I wanted to, I could overpower, I could have overpowered Eli when he was three, and I could have overpowered Caleb when he was four. But that wasn't what I was after. I didn't enter into this wrestling match so that I could beat them, so that I could overpower them. I entered into this wrestling so I could, it would develop a closer relationship. I was after, I was after the closeness. I was after the relationship. I was after that level of intimacy that comes from, from wrestling. And that's where, for me, that's where, for, where our close relationship came from. It came from, from, from wrestling our way into it. And I don't know how they would remember it or how they would view it. They would probably say that they won fair and square and I could have nothing to do with it. But as I watch, as I read this story, because of the bigness and the greatness of God, I think he could have overpowered Jacob in a moment. But God was after relationship. God was after the closeness. He was after the intimacy. And if it meant, if it meant wrestling his way to get to that, I think he was willing to look like he, was, he could not overpower him. I think he was willing to make it look that he could not shake him off. And for me, whether you agree or not, I, I think it just reveals something about his character and his nature that is true. And so when it gets to verse 28, I think it's a significant moment. I think it's a significant moment in what our understanding of biblical faith looks like. I think what God is saying, and I think there's a version, probably the message, verse 28, is saying you had the audacity to wrestle and not let go. And as we come to think, as, we, as I hope over these couple of weeks, we've, we've thought about those doubts, we've thought about those questions, we've thought about those things that we've hidden away, those things that we've suppressed and feel like we need to push them to the side because of, of that it might upset or it might distract or God might not be pleased. I think here in Genesis 32, it's one of those places where God is, God is commanding our audacity to wrestle and not let go. And so it's here that, Jacob, that Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And, it's, and what Israel means is that you would struggle with God. 
And that became the, that became the testimony of the children of Israel. It became it, it the testimony of Israel's story throughout, throughout uh, the Old Testament. One of wrestling and struggling. One of complaining, of fighting. And I think, it, and I think here God is, it feels to me that he's given, given us permission to, to wrestle. I think the Old, Test, Old Testament faith, I think as I read through the Old Testament over and over again, I see that it's a faith of wrestling and of struggling with God. I wonder how many of you are familiar with the story of Job. And in the story, in the story we're introduced to, we get the inside scoop into what's going on in the heavenly council. And... Uh, and so Jacob, Job, Job loses everything. Everything begins to be stripped away. And there's that famous verse in, in Job chapter 1, towards the end of the chapter, Job says, you give and take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But then everything continues to be stripped away. He begins to lose more. And he begins to lose more. And I think his his mindset begins to shift. Because whenever we get to Job chapter 13, he's no longer saying the right things. He's no longer saying, using the language that he knows, he feels that he has to use. He's no longer saying, you give and you take away, blessed be your name. He's saying, I want to argue my case before the Lord. I want to plead my case. I want to, I want to have this out with God. And so we have this, we have this constant back and forth with, with Job and his friends. And Job began to blame God and Job's friends began to blame Job. And all along, it looks like, for me, if you were to read through, if you were to read through the Old Testament, you would see that his friends are given the right answers. His friends are given what looks what looks biblical. But we get to the end of Job. We get to the end, and I, and I, you know what, I'll go home and read Job 38 to the end. God just begins to, and there's times where, times where I kept asking myself, God, God, it feels like you're being sarcastic here. Is that allowed? Are you, are you allowed to be sarcastic? He's asking Job, can you, can you blind the, bind the, the planets, can you bring forth the constellations? Can you set up the God's dominion over the earth? And it just goes on. Have you entered the storehouses of snow? Do you know where darkness resides? Have you ever given orders to the morning? And on and on and on and on he goes. And Job, that's what he was been after. He's been after this wrestle. He's been after He's been after God to speak, to God to come. And, and he realizes at the end, Job 42, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Surely I spoke of things I do not understand. I spoke of things too wonderful for me to know. But it was, it was Job 42 verse 7 that at the start of the week, it just, it just gripped me. It says, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, one of his friends, this is what he says to Eliphaz. The Lord speaking to Eliphaz says, I am angry with you and your two friends 
because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And I was just stumped. I found myself stumped at this verse because it felt like for the last, for the last three or four chapters that, that God was, was reminding Job how wrong he had got it. It feels like as it comes to the end, he's, he's showing that, Job, you were wrong and your friends, they were wrong too. But then he says, but then the Lord says that you have spoken, Job has spoken of me what is right and you have not. And I think often the message version is, is used as a bit of a paraphrase. But Eugene Peterson nails what the Lord is saying. He says, I've had it with you. This is what the message version says of that same verse. I've had it with you and your two friends. You haven't been honest with me or about me like Job has. You haven't been honest with me. And so again, if you were to go to the original, you'd find that the word right, the word used here in English is right. In the original Hebrew was straight or honest. And so, so God wasn't coming and, and condemning Job because he, wasn't, because he wasn't correct, because he didn't have the right beliefs. He came and he commended him because he was honest. He came and commanded Job because he was straight. And so it, it's not that he was right. It's not that Job was right, but it's that it, it was his honesty, it was his authenticity that God was commanding, that God was pointing out. And so more than anything, that's what I am I'm after for from, from my life, for my faith journey. It's what I'm passionately after for yours. That even when we don't, get it right, that we would be straight, that we would be honest, that we would be authentic. I think more than anything, we need authentic faith today. Within our churches, within our families, I know within my family, I need faith that is authentic. I know within my neighborhood, within my community, within our village, to a world that is watching on, we need authentic faith. And we've always needed authentic faith. And but I just feel like today, now, in, in a time of uncertainty, in a time of confusion, in a day where people are asking many questions, that we need authentic faith. And so let me finish with a few thoughts around doubt. I'm, I'm longing that you, those doubts or those questions, and hear me again, don't doubt just for the sake of it. Faithfulness requires you to not dwell in uncertainty. But those doubts and those struggles, I'm, I'm encouraging you, I'm urging you that it takes place on the inside of relationship. So any relationship, I think this applies to any relationship. But I know my testimony has been one of doubt and questioning and fear and failure would have been to run from him would have been to take those outside of relationship with him before I felt like I could enter back into relationship with him. But I want you to hear that there is a permission and a freedom that for those doubts and those struggles to be wrestled on the inside of relationship. Please let them take place on the inside of relationship. I think for me, it would have been important to know that I can work through, I can work through anything without a fear 
that covenant relationship hangs in the balance. There's been times where I thought those doubts, those fears, those feelings, that I almost avoided them because I convinced myself that the covenant, that that relationship would possibly be hanging in the balance. As I've worked through doubts, as I've worked through some questions that have arisen in my journey of trusting in the character of God, I've had to remain humble. That's been really important for me. Because this morning, as wonderful as many of you are, you don't have all the answers, and I don't have all the answers. That applies to my relationship with Judith. It applies to my relationship with friends. It applies to my relationship with him. That we remain humble, because we don't have all the answers. I've realized that the more that I tried to find life in the right thinking, it created a distance and a barrier between me and people that didn't think the same way that I thought. The more that now that I try to find life in right relationship with him, the closer that I feel to people. And I'm reminded of, uh, of John's letter, 1 John chapter 4. It says anyone who, who loves, who, who says that he loves God but does not love his brother is a liar. Anyone who, who, who loves, who, who hates who doesn't love his brother that he sees cannot say that he loves God who he cannot see. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so for me, the more that I've tried to find life in right relationship, it's created, it's almost been inevitable. It's, all, it's been consequential that it's, it's helped relationship with other people. And so when I think of some of those benefits that come from wrestling with doubt on the inside of relationship, for me, it's helped to refine those things that I'm passionate about. It's helped to refine those things that I am passionate about. It's helped me to take hold of them. It's helped me to own them. As I've considered wrestling on the inside of relationship, I felt permission. I felt like God has given me the invitation to explore. I felt even more so than that, it's an invitation to go deeper, to wrestle, an invitation to pour out. And another, one of the, another thing, it's made me more empathetic to those that are searching. So I, I don't know where you find yourself today. Maybe you're in a place of searching. I feel, like, I feel like I have a greater empathy for people that are in that place of searching. And there's doubts and there's questions that have arisen. I feel like I'm more empathetic to those that are drifting. Because often, because, the, because we've got so used to suppressing the doubts, we've got so used to suppressing the questions, we, we begin to drift. We keep those outside of relationship with people and outside of relationship with him. And I feel an empathy for you this morning. And if we had more time, we could, we could, even, we could go again to Jesus where I still want to finish. Because he, I think, is, he even here remains our example of what authentic faith looks like. Because as he, just before he was about to make his way to the cross, even Jesus said, Father, is there another way? Father, is, are you sure there is not another way to do this? But I trust you. Not my will, but yours be done. 
And as he hung on the cross, he, he cried that. He cried those words that the Psalms the, and many have cried since. Why, God? Why have you forsaken me? I think Jesus even reminds us, reveals to us what, what covenant faith looks like. And I think it's a commitment to authenticity. It's a commitment to trust. It's a commitment to be trustworthy in relationship to God. It's a realization for me that commitment looks healthiest when it is not without doubt, but in spite of it. Amen.